Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So a few episodes back, you mentioned you were planning to upgrade one of your mills with some ball screws. How did that go? Yeah, the tag mill that I have, which has been my workhorse for many, many years now, I've abused that poor little thing. One of the parts which uh, really wasn't designed to handle the workload that I was giving it were the uh, lead screws that were in it. The original design of that mill uh, was intended to be used as a manual mill. And when they created a CNC version of it, which is what I purchased from them, they just took the manual mill and made mounts for the stepper motors to be connected to those lead screws. It works well enough. You know, the the design is okay, and it was certainly very usable, and, and I was able to do some great work on it. Uh, but the standard lead screws that were on there were just sort of a V-thread uh, that's, you know, that you'd see typically on a, a machine screw. And that kind of thread is not very efficient. You lose a lot of energy thanks to the profile of that thread, and you can't tighten the thread up a lot. Uh, so you have lost motion in there in the guise of backlash, where when you turn the screw in the opposite direction from the, the direction you've just been turning, there's some amount of slack before things start moving again. And when you're dealing with a manual machine, it's easy for a human operator to uh, accommodate for that backlash, but it's challenging for a machine to do it through CNC work. Uh, there, There is backlash compensation that you can set up, but it, it's never quite right. Now, because of the amount of abuse that I'd given those lead screws, they had worn over the years, especially in certain parts where they were being used over and over and over again. Uh, you know, I had jobs that were running for 14, 18 hours at a time and going day in and day out. Uh, so there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of hours on those screws. And uh, while you can tighten down the nut that's in there, there's a, a bronze nut, uh, which is what it's uh, mating with. The problem with tightening it too much is that certain parts of the lead screw have been worn because that's where you're using it more. And other parts of the lead screw have not worn as much. So if you tighten the nut too much, then you end up with uh, areas that bind. So one of the things I've meant to do for many years now is to upgrade them with ball screws. A ball screw would accommodate for a number of the deficiencies of your typical V-thread. For anyone who might not be familiar, how would you describe how a ball screw operates? A ball screw still has a thread to it. Uh, so there's still a uh, a thread that goes down the length of it and spirals down. But unlike a V-thread, where you've got a 60-degree V that's been cut into it, a ball screw has a half round channel that's going down the length of the, the screw. And that half round channel is, it's, it can either be rolled in place for, for some of the cheaper ones, uh, or it can be ground into place for some of the more accurate ones. And it's just slightly smaller in size than the balls, which are going to be put in there and, and circulated through it. Uh, the nut has corresponding channels on the inside of it. And so between the nut and the shaft, these channels end up forming, you know, a circular area for these balls to to go through. 
so instead of having uh, a V, which is has a lot of uh, inefficiency in it, you have these these ball bearings which roll and are very very uh, free moving. Uh, but because the channel is just slightly undersized from the ball, uh, you basically force the balls in there under pressure, and because of that, you actually prevent backlash. Uh, now, depending on the quality of screw, there there may still be some backlash in there, and there are ways of dealing with that and uh, you know compensating for it mechanically. Uh, but even a low quality ball screw is going to have very low backlash compared to even a very high quality V-thread screw. Which is going to have clear knock-on effects in terms of boosting the the precision of your your cuts when operating it in CNC mode. Absolutely. And where you're going to see that the most is when you're making circular patterns. It's easy when you're going just back and forth in a straight line because the, you know, when you're going, let's say, from right to left, you're under load and then when you reverse direction and start going from left to right you take up that backlash initially and then you start cutting again and so you'll see a, a very small amount of offset depending on how how large the uh, the crossover of your cuts is it, but it's not too bad when you're just going back and forth in straight lines uh, the real issue becomes when you start trying to do a circle CNC machines, one of the reasons we want to use them is because they can easily interpolate circles, which is difficult for a human to do using two different controls at the same time. Uh, The problem is that if you've got backlash in your screws, instead of getting a circle, you're going to end up with an oval. And of course, if you're trying to do things like pens, which are circular, or watches, which are circular... You don't want an oval. You want a, you want an actual circle, and so these ball screws are going to have a, a huge impact on the accuracy of that kind of uh, that kind of work. On top of that, because of the efficiencies, uh, I can also get significantly faster feed rates out of it. Uh, so the the machine can move faster, uh, which means that I can then cut faster and uh, and get get jobs done in in a lower amount of time than I would have uh, using just regular V-screws. Which is great for a year of production. Well, that's the idea, right? Is I'm hoping to be able to put this thing to use again and um, and get it get it turning out some parts because there are a few things that I want to be able to make on it. Uh, I want to be able to uh, machine a few uh, watch lugs on this thing. And uh, it's it's certainly capable of doing that. Uh, but now with the ball screws, that's going to make a big difference. So did the upgrade go smoothly for you? Uh, for the most part, it did. It's uh, a bit of a rush job, and a lot of the parts were made out of things that I already had lying around the shop, so some of them look a little bit odd because they've been repurposed from other other places, but for the most part, it went well. And then on top of adding the ball screws in, I've also added a, a faster spindle to it. Uh, so previous to this, my spindle had a maximum of 10,000 RPM. And uh, the new one that's on there can do 24,000 RPM, uh, which will make using small cutters a little bit easier. Most small cutters need to go a lot faster than the 10,000 RPM, uh, which means that now I can actually push it a little bit faster and and get better quality cuts out of the uh, machine. And did you feed the balls in yourself? 
<laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> I have had to do that, and it is an absolute nightmare to uh, to do that. Yeah, if you if you do end up buying ball screws for anything or uh, the other type of system that uses uh, ball bearings like this are linear rails. Uh, so if you've got something that's doing linear motion, you can use linear rails, which use the same a similar principle. If you do buy linear rails or ball screws, be careful if you're taking the nuts off of the shaft uh, because those balls can fall out and they are an absolute nightmare to try and get in because they are in there under pressure. Uh, so they, they do need to be forced in place. And uh, if you miss a couple, for instance, if you drop one or two of those balls, then you're not going to get um, consistent motion out of it because you're going to have a few balls missing and, and it's not going to work properly. Now you and Rich recently gave uh, another one of your CNC presentations. How did that go? Yeah, it went reasonably well. We've given a few of them now at uh, one of the local makerspaces, and uh, they've been well well received when we've given them. I guess we've had about twenty people show up to uh, to this one. Yeah, it was a it was a good time, and it's it's nice to be able to talk a little bit about some of these tools and techniques, which uh, the average maker maybe isn't completely familiar with. So you typically go soup to nuts, or more of a general overview. Oh, we couldn't do a soup to nuts. It's uh, that would be far too long of an evening, or realistically, that would be more like a week of of talking. So we we tend to do a a brief overview of a lot of it, uh, sort of covering what a CNC machine is going to do for you versus a manual machine. Uh, a little bit about the the parts that are required for a, a CNC machine. A lot of the people who are there are looking at building their own. So we're giving giving some tips and tricks on what direction to go in if you're actually going to build your own machine, uh, because the again this is a little bit different than building a a manual machine, and and sometimes even just converting a manual machine isn't as simple as as you might think. We try and do a brief overview of everything, uh, also including software, because of course if you're not going to uh, talk about the software, it's a little bit difficult to um, to control this thing if uh, you don't have the right code to to go with it. So what flavor of software do you and Rich prefer? It's a pretty broad question and it and it depends on on what you're talking about. If you're if you're talking about the control software that's actually driving the machine itself, both of us tend to use Mach 3 uh, for the machines. Uh, it's a relatively inexpensive control software and it's it's relatively powerful and it's bug free enough that I can usually get my work done. Uh, and then in terms of the actual designing of things uh, because typically you want to work from a, a 3d model of some kind when you're working with the cnc machine so for that i tend to use fusion 360 uh, it's excellent design software and allows you to do 3d cad work quite easily and fortunately it also has an excellent cam package built into it so you can then turn that 3d model into tool paths which makes sense for machining and it will then output the G-code that's used by Mach 3 to move the machine around. Uh, so that typically it's it's that combination of Fusion 360 to design and uh, program, and then Mach 3 itself to actually drive the machine. So Fusion 360 has been kind of a, a, making some waves in, in more recent years, but, but prior to that, what would you have used for CAM? Uh, from a modeling point of view, I also do a fair bit of work in Rhino, uh, Rhino CAD. So that okay, so that's back to the CAD side. Was it just to clarify? 
Yeah, so Fusion 360 is really a whole package, and it, it's been able to do both the CAD side and the CAM side from the beginning. Uh, and then in my case, I would have used uh, Rhino for doing the modeling, the 3D modeling, and then mm-hmm. Rhino Cam, which was a separate package for doing the actual uh, CAM work. Uh, and again, there, there have been there are a number of different options out there. Uh, those ones were, I wouldn't say reasonably priced, but they're compared to most CAD CAM software, they were reasonably priced. And um, they were, you know, they're pretty good. There's still a few things that I use Rhino for, Rhino 3D for. And uh, that just, Fusion 360 just doesn't deal with very well. So every once in a while, I still go back into Rhino and, and use it to uh, to do some modeling. Is that typically for the texture mapping of your patterns and whatnot? Specifically, it's a uh, tool called Flow Along Surface. It allows you to take uh, flat models and wrap them around complex, uh, in my case, complex cylinders, uh, but any complex curve uh, and shape. So uh, in if you think about one of my pens, uh, you can unwrap that into a flat surface. And it's just a pattern that's been, you know, that's been designed in a flat surface. And then I take the curve and shape of the barrel that I want to use and I, Rhino has a tool for basically taking that flat, it's not really flat design because it is three-dimensional, but it's done in a, it's done on a single plane, on a flat plane. And then it takes that, that rectangular pattern that's on a flat plane and it wraps, around, it wraps it around this complex curve. And it handles all of the complexities of shrinking parts of the design where it's appropriate and expanding parts of the design where it's appropriate. And uh, makes my life a lot easier when it comes to actually modeling those those complex designs around uh, around things like a pen barrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I'm familiar with Rhino. I've never used it myself. I, I know it's quite popular among jewelers and the like, but I was not aware that they actually had a cam package as well. So that's interesting to know. Well, they didn't have a cam package. This was a separate company that built it, and uh, they called it Rhino Cam because it was built as a plugin for Rhino. And, uh, and it worked, it worked reasonably well. It was, it wasn't particularly well designed the way that it handled trying to do those, those tool paths was, was a bit problematic at times, uh, especially from a memory management point of view. Now, will you eventually be modeling your dials in Fusion 360 as well, or is that going to stay strictly within the realm of Adobe Illustrator for now? And then you'll be doing everything 100% by hand once it comes time to actually implement your designs. And dials, I don't believe I'm going to do very much work modeling them. Uh, currently, the I, I am modeling my watches in Fusion 360, so the everything from the movement to the case is has been modeled in Fusion. The dial that's in there is just a very simple placeholder, effectively. It's the correct thickness and diameter and everything, and has the holes in the right place and the uh, you know the cutouts for the moon phase and things like that those are all in there uh but the actual dial design uh, I, i'm not a big fan of how fusion works for just simple 2d sort of layout and design uh, so for that i i'm just going to use something like illustrator and what i've been using a lot lately is affinity designer uh, they've mm. got a great ipad app as well as a decent mac app uh, for doing vector-based illustrations. Uh, so I've been using uh, Affinity Designer for doing my dial designs. 
And it's a little bit more appropriate in this case for doing design work because uh, in most, I, I don't need to model 3D model the actual um, cuts that I'm making, uh, the engine turning cuts that I'm making. Uh, that kind of uh, highly repetitive, very fine detailed 3D modeling tends to really affect the performance of the model and the software. Uh, so you're generally better off not modeling that kind of thing. Same thing if you're if you're dealing with a thread in Fusion 360, you're actually generally better off not modeling the thread itself, the Vs, the you know sort of the V thread that's that goes down the the uh, shaft. You're better off not modeling that. And again, from a, mostly from a performance point of view, there's there's no there's no real benefit in uh, the model from a, a cam point of view to doing it, and it, it just ruins the performance of your of your model when you're trying to work on it. I remember way way back in grade school the first 3d software I'd ever come into contact with was a piece of software called true space uh, pretty sure it ran on uh, windows 311 uh, but a friend of mine at the time was really into mech warriors and uh, he spent months modeling a, a mech warrior and he had modeled it down to every single screw and, and rivet and can't remember how long it actually took but when he actually went to do the final render uh it was days that, that oh, yeah. it took him to to render that piece yeah i remember playing with true space back in the day it was uh incredibly powerful and allowed you to do some unbelievable render work um but again it's you know the the computers that we've got today are infinitely more powerful than the machines we had back then for rendering and certainly some of the rendering tools we have now are significantly better but trying to convince fusion to properly render the look of engine turning would just be a fool's errand mm -hmm. uh, you know again not only would the model be nearly impossible to work on uh, from a performance point of view the the rendering just wouldn't look right so uh, there's not much yeah there's not much point for me to to render that stuff i would rather see you know, see what the model looks like, make sure that there's the correct spacing for everything so that the dial thickness is right. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, to stuff too much in there with the, uh, the movement. And then inside of Illustrator itself, I do all of the, anything that's going to be black, like the numbers, the names, uh, you know, any text, anything like that, that's all going to be, you know, written, just done in black in Illustrator or in uh, Affinity Designer. And then all of the engine turning work I do in red lines so I can at least see, you know, go sort of get a sense of what it's going to look like and uh, where it's going to cover. And that is still just a representation of what it's going to be. The final piece I'm going to, you know, when I'm engine turning it is going to be a little bit different than what I've actually done in Illustrator, uh, just because there's some things that Illustrator just does not do very well. And a printer just isn't going to handle very well and uh, that I can actually do in metal with the proper gravers and, uh, you know, on a straight line engine. And the reality, too, is that engine turning never really looks the same depending on which angle you're looking at it from, which is something very yeah. difficult to capture in a, a 2D space. Now, for the actual guilloche lines and whatnot, you're not doing that in illustrator or designer you have special software for that correct uh, i have done i've done both there is a piece of software i've used in the past called Eccentro for doing uh, guilloche work uh, sort of guilloche designs 
it's designed for the security printing world so that if you want to design your your money for instance and have all of the fun security printing stuff that that we used to do with geometric engines you can do all of that quite easily in Excentro. and it is designed to be able to handle doing engine turning work in there and then output it as vectors so if you wanted to be able to then import it into illustrator or affinity designer uh, it's relatively easy to do that uh, so i have done some of that in the past in fact what i've what i tend to do is i'll make up uh sort of a a collection of patterns in excentro and then export them so that i can then bring them into illustrator and then just use them as as patterns in illustrator uh, or or affinity just because they are better at doing the overall design work than Accentro is. But mm-hmm. Accentro is better at doing those repetitive patterns with minor shifts through the, uh, you know, sort of through that pattern uh, to create the the engine turning effect. I've used a combination of both, but I, I tend to do most of the work itself, including um, actually laying out where the engine turning is going to go using, uh, an, you know, something like uh, like Affinity Designer or Illustrator. Actually, the the background behind the contact form on the Off Hours website was designed with a, a combination of Accentro and Illustrator. Exactly, that's a perfect example of how we would use it. Yeah, there there are some limits to it, and uh, there are some benefits to it. I certainly don't use the software anywhere near as much as as it was designed to be used. As I said, it was designed for incredibly complex work and incredibly complex security printing work, uh, but I don't. I don't really use it for that. My my needs for it are very, very simple. You should start designing your own money. <laughs> I think there are laws against that, John. There's a funny anecdote in uh, Woz's biography. Uh, Steve Wozniak, one of the co-founders of, of Apple. I believe the biography is I Was, but uh, he printed up his own money at, at some point in his life and uh, managed to, to trade it for, for the odd thing. There is a good story about... Banksy doing something similar he ended up creating some I, I want to say they were five or ten pound notes I can't remember what they were but they they weren't a, a huge denomination uh, but he ended up making replacement notes that had Princess Diana on it instead of the Queen hmm. the problem was that he made them a little too realistic and when they tried actually print you know they, they sort of one or two of his uh, of his associates sort of tried passing them off as real bills, and they didn't have any issues at all passing them off as real bills. At which point they realized, uh-oh, this is actually a serious problem, and we can never put these bills out into the world because these are basically counterfeit money. So they have something like two million pounds worth of these bills sitting in boxes in a warehouse because they just they realized that they couldn't actually put them out into the world. So posthumously... I'm sure that that particular Banksy art piece is going to sell for significantly more than two million pounds. So you're you're presently in the throes of designing your dials and working out the guilloche patterns and whatnot. I'm curious to hear uh, what are some dials that that you find particularly well made that are already out there in the world by other creators or brands. Yeah, over the years I've created a collection of dials that I like that inspire me for various reasons. Some of them, it's because I like the functions that are on the dial. Some of it's because I just like the pure ornamentation of it. Certainly one of the most interesting dials from a guilloche point of view 
that I've seen recently is Roger Smith's Great Britain Watch. He he produced this back, I want to say 2013. This was a campaign that um, the British government started. They had a number of uh, creators, a number of artists making various pieces to sort of promote Great Britain in the world and uh, promote them as a, um, a maker of things. And they asked Roger to try and create a, a watch that they could use as part of this showcase. And so he came up with one of his watch designs. And the case itself is relatively standard Roger Smith design, uh, sort of influenced heavily by the, the George Daniels design sense. But the dial is interesting because he took part of the Union flag and recreated it in silver as a guilloche design using different guilloche patterns and different depths of um, of the pattern to uh, recreate the flag. And I think that, you know, I think that he did a fabulous job with taking something that could have been incredibly illegible and and almost impossible to actually see and i think he's made a reasonably good dial out of this and certainly from a a technical point of view the guilloche work on this dial is fabulous and um the complexity of this dial to to assemble is is unbelievable because this this dial is made up i remember one point he said i think there was something close to 100 parts uh in this dial to to get it assembled uh so it's uh, a quite an impressive technical uh feat and uh, I think it, it looks reasonably good. That is remarkable that it is not as busy as it very well could have been, as you say. I still find it a little too busy for my, my own taste, but it is, as, on a technical level, absolutely impressive uh, that he was able to to do this and, and to create it and uh, pull it off as masterfully uh, as he has. One thing I'm curious uh, about aesthetically with it is with the basket weave pattern in the main cross mm-hmm. portion i'd be curious to ask him why he chose to to join the diagonal i know it's more um classic and, and common in terms of watchmaking but uh, i would have been interested to see how it, it would have looked to have done that uh, straight up and down just vertically and, and horizontally as opposed to on a, a 45 degree angle like that well, I think when you're looking at that, the turning the turning that basket weave on its side like that, I th- or end on, I should say, I think it actually creates a better texture than it would have been if it was vertical. Uh, the other problem is that because you're dealing with uh, vertical and horizontal cuts in the metal, you end up with a problem if that. Um, if that engine turning isn't absolutely bang on perfect, if it's following along where those those vertical cuts are, or I should say if the vertical cuts in the metal are not perfect, it's very difficult to hide that. So uh, from um, from an execution point of view, what he's done, it's much easier to hide any small inconsistencies in either the engine turning or the cut and to be honest, it it would be nearly impossible to cut that metal in such a way that you wouldn't notice some sort of problem in the engine turning. That's one of the, the downsides of engine turning is that it is just so effective at pointing out any minor problem like that. I think this was a practical decision uh, because I think 
trying to make that piece in the orientation you're thinking, I, I don't think it would be possible to do without it looking really bad. Like without it being obvious that there were problems with the uh, with either the cut or the the engine turning. Spoken like a true expert. I, I've I've had a little bit of experience with trying to hide flaws in engine turning before, and it unfortunately you don't have anywhere to hide for the most part in engine turning and making verti- long vertical cuts along the edge of a piece of metal is very very challenging and it's it's very easy to end up with a glaring mistake i I had this problem with one of the iphone 4 back replacement backs that i did the one that i've i've got a picture of in most places is the one that's a radial pattern and that's actually the one that i prefer the most for a number of reasons but one of the reasons is that it hides a lot of the problems with it and I did another one that has vertical cuts, which has a drapery pattern on it. And when you look at the drapery pattern along the edge of that metal, you can see where the metal is not perfectly straight and uh, and not perfectly plumb either. At least for somebody like myself, it's, it's this glaring error and it's very easy to see the problems with it. So I, I've, I've learned from that to avoid trying to, uh, to put long vertical cuts right along the edge of a piece of metal like that. You're suddenly making me question my understanding of the word plumb. So how how does that differ from from straight in this context? Well, because it's it's off on a bit of an angle, right? It, because the the cut is straight or the, the edge of the piece okay. of metal is straight. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. But it's but it's off by a quarter degree. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that it's off by a quarter of a degree, and that's enough over the length of an iPhone 4, which was a couple of inches long, to be able to easily see that there was a problem there and that the cut was not actually completely plumb all the way along the, the edge of that, that piece of metal. Hmm. So what, what's another dial in your back catalog of inspiration? Well, speaking, you know, sort of sticking in the vein of of guilloche dials i think one of the companies that has done guilloche better than anybody else is vacheron constantin their team that's there is absolutely fabulous there are a few individuals in that company who have been doing their guilloche work over the last sort of 10 years and have really elevated their dials to the next level i find that most people when they're doing guilloche work tend to mimic the classic brigade style and, and i can understand why it, it looks good it it isn't offensive it's been tried and tested over hundreds of years now and uh, and so i i understand why a lot of people go with the sort of the classic brigade styling and frankly that's one of the reasons why why i'm designing a lot of my watch around some of that classic brigade engine turning uh, but the particular watches from vacheron i'm thinking of are their meche d'art uh, series in particular, they did a series uh, replicating some of Escher's designs and prints into uh, enamel dials. Probably my favorite of a lot of them was the Angels and Demons one that they did, and it is absolutely fabulous. In this case, they've used a combination of plain silver and enamel to get some some color and, and contrast in there. And then they've used guilloche work to create the patterns and the uh, sort of the shape of the uh, the angels and demons 
you know, the wing shapes, for instance, or the, the shape of the clothing. And they've done an absolutely fabulous job with that. And I, I like the, I like that sort of out of the box thinking when it comes to how to use guilloche work. Uh, now, some of these were also hand engraved or parts of this, this is hand engraved as well. Not all of it is done with a, with a straight line engine or a rose engine, but the bits that they were using uh, an engine for, it's absolutely spectacular idea. Um, same thing with the others in this series. They've done a number of them, and uh, they did the fish one as well, uh, as well as the lizard one. Uh, they've done a bunch of them. This use of of engine turning patterns to create texture is uh, is absolutely fabulous. I love what they've done with these. Yeah, quite literally, MC Escher'd the hell out of this style. It's an unabashed copy of what Escher was doing, and they don't they don't hide that at all. Uh, but they are, in fact, this is an exact. Uh, I think the pattern was a little bit different in terms of how Escher did this particular one, the angels and demons, but they're, they were very upfront about the fact they were using this as a, um, using his work as, um, as the inspiration for this. Uh, but the way that it, it looks is just fabulous. It actually makes quite a bit of sense to go with Escher's work for a piece like this because so many of his tessellations were woodcuts. So it's very similar techniques that you would be applying in terms of cutting into to metal versus cutting into wood yeah they these are are well done i've never seen one of these particular ones in person but i have seen uh, they did a series a couple of years after this uh it was um flowers that they had done and again they were engine turned for some of the patterns in the flowers and hand engraved for others and then uh stunning absolutely stunning enamel work over top of that and uh, we saw one of those watches when we were in Macau a few years ago. Vacheron has a a boutique set up in one of the, the casinos there. So we went in and asked if they happened to have one of these watches on hand, and they did. So we we had them bring it out and, and took a look at it. And the, the enamel work on it is absolutely stunning. And um, they, are, they are really impressive watches in person. They were obviously very limited editions. I think they only made five or six of each of them. And I'm sure that they all sold very quickly. And I'm sure that almost all of them are sitting in vaults somewhere, safe somewhere, because um, I, I imagine that these are, are going to be very desirable later on in the secondhand market. Uh, but they're they're stunning watches. If you ever get a chance to see any of these in person, they're, they're absolutely fabulous. Now, do you know offhand precisely which portions of this Angels and Demons style were hand-carved versus guilloche turned? Because I... Like there are hints of, of guilloche work in the, the wings and the, and the folds of the angel's gowns, but then in, in other orientations, it, it looks much more like it's been hand engraved. Yeah, the, the faces and the um, the hair, for instance, those are all hand engraved um, and parts of the bodies and things like that are hand engraved. But the um, the patterns that you're thinking of, those those were definitely done on um, on a rose engine, like the fabric and the uh, and the wings. Those were those were done on a rose engine. Hmm. Must have had uh, quite a number of of jigs or a lot of shuffling about on a, a wax fixture to be able to orient it and all the, the multitude of different orientations that it would have been required to be set in to be able to rose cut those. Yeah, there's there's a couple of tricks to it. Without going too deep into the weeds, you wouldn't use a wax chuck for this. In fact, I believe they actually use a vacuum chuck to uh, to hold it on. Hmm. Uh, but you would actually move the whole chuck. You don't uh, you don't move the piece. You move the whole chuck. These chucks are designed in such a way that you can actually um, adjust them quite a bit. And I'm saying that there are tricks to doing it and there are ways, you know, the the chucks are set up in such a way that you can do it. But 
that's not to diminish the the skill that's involved in doing this and doing it properly and making them symmetrical on either side of a wing for instance it, it required this these dials would have required hundreds of hours of work uh without a doubt they're they're not trivial to do i had no idea that there were Kyoshe engines out there with vacuum trucks on them you you have enlightened me once again thank you so i know you're a, a fan of a lot of votilinen's engine turning as well as there a particular piece from his work that, that has stood out to you? Yeah, Kari is one of those people who I think overall has some of the best taste in dial design of anybody in the industry. You know, for somebody who's putting out as many different designed watches as he is, because they're, while a lot of the watches themselves are the same, like the, the movements are the same and the cases are the same, there are a lot of variants in his dials. Um, and that's one of the ways that he sort of creates a lot of, a lot of variants in his, in his work. Overall, I, I'm a huge fan of his stuff, and very few of them sort of miss the mark for me. And even the ones that miss the mark, I don't find horrible designs. I just, you know, I may not like the colors that he's chosen or whatever. Probably the one that I like the most is one that we talked about last year, and that was a decimal repeater that he did with a regulator dial on it. Now, a regulator dial has the hours, minutes, and seconds on it, but they're separated out into three different dials. Uh, so in this case, the hours is a subdial at the three o'clock position. The seconds is a subdial at the nine o'clock position. And the minutes is from the center of the dial. And that's a slightly different setup than a lot of regulator designs. Most of the time, people do a regulator design with the subdials at the 12 o'clock and the 6 o'clock position. And that's sort of the, I think that's that's probably the traditional way of doing it. Uh, but I really like the look of this. I like the uh, the balance of how this looks. This was sort of the first regulator movement I saw that was set up this way, or regulator dial, I, I should say, that was set up this way. And it's convinced me at some point that I need to try my hand at doing, doing one uh, in this sort of orientation. I, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's extremely legible and it's a it's just a really well-balanced design that that looks fabulous and uh, it, it has some guiche in it but it's it's simple and understated and it uh, it works very well with making this a very legible watch as we had discussed back in that episode unlike a lot of kari's more modern pieces the particular movement in this repeater is based on a Bosch so not something that he mm -hmm. designed or built from the ground up so the fact that the you've got the central minutes and the offset seconds and offset hour registers do more to the the limitations of the, the movement that he was working with and um, just mechanically it, it makes far more sense to to set things up in this sort of orientation uh, as opposed to everything that would be required to reconfigure it in order to have the the seconds centrally displayed with the hours and minutes offset you essentially introduce a, a lot of potential for for error or for things to to not work as they should or, or to break down uh, faster than they should so with, with the minutes already having been centrally driven in this abosh and then you would have generally had the hours originally being driven from the center as well it's much easier just to offset the hours leave the minutes as they are because that's going to be the the highest post coming up out of there anyway and then that's leaving the the seconds 
uh, running off to the side. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And the original movement would have been a pocket watch, so this would have actually had the second subdial at the 6 o'clock position anyways, I believe. Precisely. You're right. It, it does make a lot of sense the way that he's designed this for the uh, for the original movement that was in there. Uh, but having said that, I, I think that the choice that he made in terms of how he's laid this out and exactly what it looks like, it's, um, it is a fabulous design, and it's, uh, it's certainly something that, that has inspired me to think about uh, dial design in a different way um, mm. and uh, and sort of move past some of my preconceived notions about where certain things should be and, and how it should be laid out. So with this particular piece, it's it's more the, the layout than the guilloche work itself necessarily? Yeah, the guilloche work here is is nice. And, and don't get me wrong, it's, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, if you look at high-res photos of this guilloche work, it is entirely flawless. Uh, but having said that, it's not particularly complex. It's nothing like the previous watch that we talked about. Uh, you know, the previous watch, as I said, would have been hundreds of hours of of engraving and engine turning work to get that done. This one here is probably more like twenty five or thirty hours to get it done. Um, so it's it's significantly less work to engine turn this this dial and get it looking right. But having said that, it is still flawless and it is entirely appropriate. Uh, they haven't done too much with it. For instance, the two subdials have identical engine turning patterns in them. They're they're uh, look like a clou de Perry, uh engine turning style, and a, a lot of people they would have decided, oh, I've got two subdials. Let's use two different design patterns here. Let's let's use uh, you know clou de Perry in one, and let's use uh, basket weave in another, and that would have been the wrong choice. And this. You know, it would not have looked as good as this. It wouldn't have been as balanced as this. So again, the fact that he, the fact that they've chosen to go with a relatively restrained and and simple pattern for this is entirely appropriate, and it and it works very well for the design. So this is is it's not all about you know making something as complex as it can be. Uh, sometimes, you know, great design means toning certain things down and and. Uh, using it in a more appropriate way. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I love this watch. I love what he's done with it. And I, I think that they've made uh, made excellent design decisions. Same thing with the text. The text is very simple. It's very legible. They've made some some excellent design choices there. And again, the hands are the same way. The gold hands with the, the blued steel, they're very legible. And again, a, a very a good choice. Yeah, the restraint that... Votilainen exercises quite often in his watches. I think it's precisely what lends them such sophistication. They really are masterfully executed on the whole. And uh, I, I really, like you, admire his work and, and so many of his dials. And, and like you, the times that I don't, it's really just a matter of taste and, and color for the most part. But, uh, it really is leagues above and beyond uh, even what a lot of the the much larger producers of, of fine timepieces are are able to pull off. Yeah, if you if you said to me, you know what, you're going to get uh, a Kari Futaline and watch, and you're going to pay full price for it, and you have to trust in Kari's taste for the dial, and you you have to take it. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate. Uh, you know, again, I would be 
I, I've never I've never looked at any of his watches and said, "Wow, that was a poor choice." They've always been well well done, and again, it's it's mostly a question of taste, and and even then, it's it's easy to be able to say, "Yeah, I'd be happy with that watch if if that was on my wrist." I would have maybe chosen something slightly different if I was making the decision, but certainly um, nothing that he's designed would uh, has really turned me off. And I appreciate how the the pattern on the the main part of the dial on this piece is sort of is there and and recedes into the background. I'd be curious to know what a, a piece like this would be like from Votilina with uh, a guilloche work similar to what's on say something like uh, the Chipek uh, L'Or Bleu that I believe we spoke about around this time last year where the the two guilloche patterns are concentric around the subdials and then meet up in the middle. Uh, but I think that would be too busy for, for this particular piece. Yeah, I don't think that would be appropriate for this. And I, I th- again, I think that the restrained choices that he made here are perfect. I think that they're exactly what this piece needed. And one of the issues that you run into anytime you start dealing with uh, different ways of showing time, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit more in a, in a few minutes with a couple of the other watches that are on my list, you have to be careful anytime you change that sort of the standard viewing pattern of a watch. If you've done something too different or too bizarre and you've moved where the hour hand is and where the second hand is and where the minute hand is and and things are not moving in the way that you expect them to do, then it becomes really difficult for people to to look at the watch and be able to use it as a watch. Now, I understand there's one sort of train of thought where people are, you know, they want to have to think about their watch when they look about it. They want to have to, um, they don't want to have to look at it and just be able to to quickly glance at it and and, and be able to know what the time is. They want to actually think about it and and they want it to be a bit of a mental exercise when they're working on the or when they're looking at their watch and and that's fine. But I think for the most part, for most people, when they look at a watch, they want it to be something that's usable and something that's legible. Uh, so you have to be careful when you start moving that language around that sort of that watch language, the time language around in a design. You have to be careful uh, about the rest of the design. Otherwise, you can just make the watch entirely unusable. And it, it may be the best executed watch in the world. Uh, but if it's if it's not very easy to read, uh, what's what's the point of having it? Like, why are you why are you wearing that watch? having trouble remembering the exact reference, but Voti Lennon has actually a very good example of just such a, a difficult-to-read piece. And I think it was his ISO piece, uh, where the the chapter ring moves around as the, the hands move around, and you really have to think when you are trying to read the time off of the watch, despite it looking like quite a normal dial. Hmm. Now, despite what you might think from... Uh my first couple of choices from here, not everything that's on my list is uh, engine turning based or guilloche based. Uh, there there are some interesting designs out there that I, I like that uh, that don't have any guilloche on them at all. And I don't think that's necessary to make a good looking watch either. One of the companies we've spent a lot of time talking about is Acrivia and uh, Regep and his designs. Uh, and I, I know that you're a big fan of, um, of the Acrivia stuff as well, right? Of the movements, absolutely. There was one particular watch that I found from them that I'm I'm a fan of. Uh, this is a uh, Tourbillon that they created a few years ago. 
And one of the things that I've always been a fan of with Regep's designs and not just his dial designs, but also his movement designs is that he's willing to play with texture and use texture in a way to create different areas and different different views of, of the piece so that it's easy to tell what it is that you're looking at. It's easy to distinguish different places in a, you know, in, in what you're looking at from one another. Uh, so for this particular one, uh, the background of the dial has a combination of different textures on it. Everything from uh, just a, a satin finish that's been uh, sanded in place. Some of it has been bead blasted, uh, but some of it's been hand hammered. And uh, they've they've actually used a a point, you know, a pointed um, steel tool with a hammer and hand hammered a texture into the back of this dial. And then other parts of it have been highly polished and have a black polish on it. So I think one of the things that I've always been a fan of with him is is just this use of texture. And it's something that very few people are good at anymore. Uh, obviously, a lot of people use guilloche work as texture. And there are ways of using texture or using it for texture that, that are effective, like the uh, the Voodleinen dials. But very few people are effective at using physical texture that isn't an engraving and uh, I think a lot of people look at that as a design element that's just too basic and too simple. Uh, but again, if it's used well and it's used effectively, it can create an incredible amount of contrast. Uh, so for instance, in this case, the numbers are blued numbers that are on top of a B-blasted finish. And it's an, it's an extremely effective look. Uh, if that underlying metal had a different texture... Uh, all of a sudden, those numbers would not be as legible. Uh, for instance, if that was a guilloche background there, all of a sudden it becomes significantly more difficult to see the edges of those numbers. Uh, you've got a little bit of reflection in the guilloche work, and so it's not as high contrast as this. Uh, so I, I like the choices that he's made. I like, I, I've always been incredibly impressed with his finishing and the look of, of each of these, um, uh, you know, the, the, the absolute perfection in in his finishing technique. And, and this style I think is, um, is a great example of that use of texture to, uh, to create incredibly dynamic, uh, dials and, um, and very, very fascinating designs. The applied numerals on this piece really are incredible. Uh, you very rarely see applied numerals done this well on any watch. Mm -hmm. And this is, Again, a, a cut above just about anything else you can buy on the market. And the way that the, the numerals themselves are, are executed and, and finished and blued, this is just, once again, a masterfully produced piece. I mean, you're paying for that masterful touch. Absolutely. But a, a really well done. And even just the the subtle difference um, in the, the numeral sizes. So you your 12 and your 3 and your, your 9 are all slightly oversized compared to the rest of the numerals to give you that distinct anchoring on the the quarters and it's just one of those subtle things that is often overlooked i mean dial design there are certain things that, that you want in place so you can very quickly read the time when you're, you're glancing at your watch and those subtle little cues well you may not be aware of them your mind your brain are picking up on those things and it helps you read the time that much faster we're talking like probably microseconds but it makes a difference and that 
mental burden that is alleviated has very real effects on both the the utility of the piece and and how you feel using the piece. Yeah, the cognitive load is is very real and it's something that again, you don't necessarily want when in in a utility item like this. I mean, it's you know, again, this this watch I have no idea what the actual price of it is. It's probably 100 plus thousand dollars, but it's it's still a a thing that tells the time and that cognitive load you want it to be as low as possible when you're when you're trying to to create an item like this uh, something else that I'm I'm a huge fan of with this is his choice of his typeface that he's chosen for his numbers hmm. there was a comment was it SJX who commented on on this I think in in one of his articles and he said you know you can pay a lot of money to be looking at times new roman on your watch and it's so true there's so many watch companies that are that that spend a huge amount of time designing these technically impressive movements and you know spending huge resources on machining and getting finishes correct and then they make really mediocre decisions when it comes to their typeface uh, this this choice of of numbers it's not you know it's sort of a serif version of a number and it's got a little bit of character to it without that character making the numbers illegible and it's it's a nice choice it's not uh, it's not too ornate uh, i know some of the some of the numbers i've seen in in some older watches they they tend to be a little bit ornate uh, this is a nice combination of again very legible but just that little bit of of detail to uh, to add some flair and character to these numbers and it it makes them stand out i i don't know that i've seen anybody using the these styles of numbers before and it it really does make these uh, these watches jump out at you mm-hmm. it's a, a very modern serif mm. so you said well, we're beginning to stray a little bit from uh, your guilloche inspiration and, <laughs> and heading a little further afield what else what else do you have in store for us well the other thing that i like and and again this is this gets into a bit of the the kari uh design as well but i i like different ways of telling the time that are still interesting and usable and one of my favorite ways it's not really a complication but it's a sort of a different way of of getting motion on a on a watch dial i'm a huge fan of retrograde dials uh and and using that in various ways i think the typical one that you usually see on a watch is an up down indicator for the power reserve um sometimes you may see it as a a date indicator People who are using retrograde motion for the actual time, I'm always fascinated with to see what they're doing. Uh, this particular watch, um, made by uh, Thomas Pressure, I'm sorry, I'm butchering that name. I'm sure that it uh, sounds far more interesting than what I've just uh, done. Sounds right to me. This is the uh, the Nemo Officer watch, and again, this this watch, they've chosen to use different textures for the finishing. They haven't just chosen to to use a bright polish everywhere uh, and there's no guilloche work at all on this dial i think that the choice of of textures is excellent and it it makes this watch legible along with having different colored metals uh, but the thing that attracts me the most about the to this watch is the retrograde um, hand motion for the hours and minutes and they've chosen to do something a little bit different uh, instead of using a traditional hand they've chosen to use a sector which actually states on it what it is that it's telling you, which is a slightly different design choice. 
not sure that I'm uh, entirely on board with it, but I like that they've chosen to do something different. Just because of that, I'm willing to to say go for it. It's um, I'm I'm happy that they've chosen to do something a little bit different. Yeah, that that's an interesting choice, and I I'm always a big fan of people doing doing something different. And retrograde motion is one of those interesting different things that if you can pull it off and you can make it look right, it it is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's almost a, a little bit patronizing to label the, <laughs> the hands on a, a watch. I'm surprised he didn't also label the seconds hand. Uh, but I, I can kind of see why he's he's done it in this particular case, because the hands, so to speak, I mean, this is using the term loosely, uh, are both of the same length, whereas as normally you yes. have different length hands to, to differentiate easily between what is the hours and, and what is the minutes. So in this case, it would be a, a little more difficult, once again, uh, alleviating that, that cognitive load. You would actually have to take the time to take in the entire arc of the what those hands are, are indicating to see what the scale of measurement is to determine what the hand was if, if they had not been labeled. Yeah, you'd need to really look at the scale on the numbers to see and figure out what it is that you're looking at. And... In this case, I think the other reason he's gone with that is because this is, I think this is supposed to be hearkening back to a sort of a, a fantastical ship, uh, you know, some kind of a submarine. And so the dial is very reminiscent of that kind of a style of, of uh, instrument panel in, um, you know, in something that, uh, that you'd find under the sea. And so I think labeling it like that is appropriate. Uh, you would certainly see things like that labeled in a, you know, in a submarine. So I think, I think it's a, a, good design choice for what he's doing i I might have chosen a slightly different design idea for it but it works perfectly for what he's trying to do uh the other thing that you mentioned the seconds hand the the seconds hand is a little bit different because it actually has two hands on it and the second hand only sweeps along the bottom half of the watch Uh, so the the hand reaches across the entire width of the dial and as one end of the hand leaves the the um uh, the sector the next one enters on the other side uh, so you continually are able to see the hand along that um, that scale uh, but it's uh, it's sort of an interesting design idea the way that he's chosen to do that uh, and then in terms of retrograde uh, motion the uh, the other one that um, that I've seen that's interesting is Nina Bar Bunde Again, I'm sorry, I'm horribly butchering this name. It's a German name. Uh, this is another retrograde motion. And in this case, the hour and minute hands both originate from the six o'clock position on the watch and uh, sweep across the whole face. There's bits and pieces of the execution of this that I don't like. I, I don't think the the uh, balance of this dial is perfect. But again, I like the choice of a retrograde motion. I think it's fascinating. I, I think it leads to something a bit different and a bit, uh, a bit interesting in the uh, the watch. So I, I'm a big fan again of of the fact that they've chosen to go with a with a retrograde hand. I think they could have been some slightly better design choices with the guilloche work and and the balance of the um, the arcs where the numbers are. But uh, overall, I, I love the the idea that they've gone and. Uh, taken the time and and made the effort to actually make a retrograde movement uh, because that's not something that you're just going to get out of the box this is uh, clearly something that they've 
either made completely from scratch or modified an existing movement to be able to do. Yeah, contrasting it with Pressure's work, yeah, in terms of balance, Pressure did nail a better balance simply by changing the the scale. So this yes, the scale in this piece for the minutes begins and ends on thirty minutes, and then for the hours begins and ends on six hours. Whereas with Pressure, he began and ended both scales uh, at zero, which right away lends a a much more pleasant balance to the look of the the scale. Uh, but again, overall, it's uh, it's commendable that that they're using this uh, retrograde motion. Uh, I've I've got some ideas for some things that I want to do with a retrograde movement. I, obviously, again, as I said, I'm going to have to modify something to uh, to make it work the way that I want to. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get anything out of the box that does what I want. So, I've got some ideas for how I want to deal with that, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to trying it out because it's it's certainly an interesting thing that can an interesting design element that can make your watch stand out quite a bit. And uh, and isn't just sort of the typical, um, you know, hour, minute, second from the the center of a watch, uh, which everybody is doing. So it's nice every once in a while to to sort of step away from what everybody else is doing and try something a bit different. So will you be building your movement from scratch, or would you be building this retrograde system on top of something like the the Eternas you've been working with? Uh, the first one that I've got an idea for, I, I think I figured out a design change based on a 6497. And I think I figured out how to modify a 6497 to do what I want to do. Uh, so that's the first one that I'm going to try it with. It may not be something that's usable as a watch. It just may be too big to turn into a watch. It may be too thick. Um, but at least it's going to give me an idea to figure out the design elements and the mechanics of it. And see if I can get it working. Uh, so that's that'll be the first one that I try it with. That I may turn into a small desk clock if I'm um, if it's a bit too big for what I want to do. Something along the lines of what the participants in the Langensena uh, design challenge did that we discussed from SIHH, where they were using 6497s and their modifications made them so they would have been entirely unusable as a as a wristwatch. I may do something similar and turn it into an actual desk clock, you know, small desk clock or something like that. So we'll see how it turns out. Uh, that's going to be a design, sort of a design challenge for me and and see if I can, more of the, I need to see if I can make it work first and see if I'm happy with the, the function of it. And then once I'm happy with the function of it, then I'll decide how I want to go and proceed and turn it into an actual watch. And it will certainly mean designing another dial. Oh, absolutely. But that's that's the fun, right? Got to have a good reason to design another dial. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.